Over the last two decades, I've been on a quest to learn everything I can about leadership, obsessed with what makes the best leaders so good. After running companies small and large for the last 20 years, today I speak on stages all across the world to audiences who are interested in that same question. My name's John Laredo, and I'm your host. I invite you to join me on this journey as we explore this topic. What makes the best leaders so good? Welcome to Tomorrow's Leader. All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on everything leadership related. You know, we're now five episodes in, and I'm having a lot of fun with this because we get to talk about my passion, which is leadership. And as we talked about last time, last episode, if you tuned in, uh, we talked about some obstacles that get in the way from becoming a great leader. And we also talked about some ways that uh, you can really take steps to learn leadership because leadership is learnable. It's not one of those things you're just born with. So one of my favorite things to do is bring on great guests. And today I got a really great one for you. So uh, we're privileged to have somebody on who's really um, accomplished a lot, uh, a real good guy who I've met recently. And uh, he's been in financial services for the last 20 years, very successful career, uh, is president of a financial services firm, a, a very successful one. But uh, beyond that, also does a lot of speaking engagements. He's uh, recently written a book and published a book called Servant Advisorship that's doing very well. And uh, he's also got a couple other really cool things going on. I'll let him tell you. He lives down in Florida with his wife and two kids, enjoying the nice warm weather. And I'd like to welcome Chris Bonacore to the show. So Chris, welcome. Hey, John. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Thanks for joining us. So, Chris, I, uh, I gave the audience a little bit of a, an idea of who you are today, but I thought what a cool thing to do would be to let's, let's take it back a little bit. Why don't you tell us uh, maybe who you were and you know, how you got into what you're doing now and tell us a story about Chris. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's see. Where do I start? Grew up, uh, grew up super poor kid outside of Philadelphia in South Jersey uh, for the most part. Um, mom was, uh, a substance abuser most of her life. Um, I, yeah, I'm just going to dive right into that, John, if that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I decided to, at 16, take upon myself, um, to leave at 16, um, because of how, uh, abusive the, the situation was. Um, I did have three siblings. We had uh, we had four kids, if you will, uh, from three fathers. So, um, so I was the oldest. My leaving was was um, uh, I guess challenging to say the least for the uh, for my siblings um, when I decided to leave and and uh, not return home. So, um, I guess that's where I got started. Does that, wow, does that help? Man. That does. Jeez, that's, that's wow. What one heck of a, of a, of a background. So you left at 16. I mean, what was that? I just think of myself when I was 16 and wow, I just was not ready for the, the world and me taking on the world. How, how tell us about that. How was that transition? Yeah. Uh, none of us are. So you're, you're not alone <laughs> in that regard. Yeah. Um, not, um, however, 
I always knew, even at, a, at an even younger age, that um, I wanted to take control of my life. So at that, at that moment, I did. Um, and I went and I stayed with a, a, a bunch of friends and different family members and so forth. And then, um, and then an uncle actually ended up getting custody of me through a, a series of uh, legal proceedings and took custody of me for about 18 months until I graduated high school. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it was, you know, I moved from, from where I was to the Philadelphia suburbs, uh, out in, out in Pennsylvania and, um, much, much bigger school, different environment, different, different, uh, kids. Uh, it, it felt like then, and even looking back at it, it, you know, cause you might say, well, kids are kids, but just different, um, type of, uh, uh population of kids. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of what it was like trying to fit into this gigantic school and in the middle of the year. <laughs> wow, that I mean that that's got to be an unbelievably uncomfortable thing. So you left your your siblings uh, were they they stayed with your mom? Is that right? And you left uh, on your own? That's right. Yes. Yeah. They they stayed back and uh, yeah. Look, they they resented me for years. Um, uh, in fact a couple of them didn't even speak with me for a couple of years because, you know, it was kind of like you left me. Um, and, and that, that was tough. It was tough because I was always kind of the, the protector. And, um, and at some point I decided I just had to take care of me. I don't know that looking back, I would have done it any differently. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they, they stayed back. And I even, I even said, you know, do you want to come with me? Um, how old were they at about that it. time? So um, my my brother was two years younger, um, is two years younger, and then I, um, brother and sister were um, eight and six years different than I in age. So um, so it was you know the younger ones certainly probably weren't going anywhere. Plus their father was there, and um, but, but my brother. The one's two years difference. He, uh, he just he made a choice uh, not to not to leave. So, uh, and, and we can we don't have to go. You don't have to answer this as, as uh, openly as you've you've told us so far. But what was there some kind of triggering event? I mean, what happened at sixteen that I mean that pushed you to to take that step and and move out? So it was it was a series. Uh, yeah, there's there's there are no secret cows. Um, you ask me anything. Uh, it was a series of events. It just, I, I would say that it continued to escalate um, over and over and over again uh, through over the course of weeks and probably months uh, where I became, I, I guess I look back and I became defiant to the point where I almost forced a reason to leave. And what I mean by that is nothing, nothing bad, but, um, I didn't do anything bad, but I would just kind of instigate, uh, and, um, I, I'm trying to think back. So the reason I'm hesitating, not because it's emotional, but because I'm trying to think back, but the cops came, uh, because my mom had, had beaten us all uh, pretty good and, um, they left. And then I, I think, if I recall, it was the the next night where 
um, kind of things flared up again and uh, we all eventually went to bed and I just, I said, that's it. I'm out. Uh, and I left and when everyone was asleep and, and I never went back. Wow. So they didn't even know it. You just left, left in the middle of the night. Yes. Wow. Yep. So when you look back, was that, I mean, had you not, you, you basically felt you had to get out of there. If you were going to, to, to live the life you wanted to live, you it sounded like you 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 knew this was something you had to do. What, what, what do you think if you didn't do that, had you stayed, what would that have, what would your life have been like? Do you think? It's a great, it's a great question because, you know, I, I always think about um, what if this, what if that, and there's so many different twists and turns in, in my life because there's a whole, whole other aspect we can get into. And I can tell you for a while um, about how I eventually met my father at 38. And, and so, so what would life have been like if I had been with him, known him? And, um, if I had stayed in the house, um, I, I really believe that I would have, um, gone a similar path. It wouldn't have been the exact path because um, certain things probably would have held me back, but I still would have done something um, where I pursued the vision that I had for my life. And um, in the book you mentioned that I wrote, I, I, I talked about vision and vision casting and creation and um, at, at the youngest of ages, I had this vision for what I wanted my life to be like. And it was so vivid and so strong that I just can't imagine um, being much different than I am today, unless it was just greater and grander. So what, what, what was that vision? Was that vision what you are living now or was it different? Um, no, I think it's, I think to my, my philosophy on visions is, you know, you're never going to get exactly to it. I, I equate it to, um, isotopes, uh, in, as if you know, your, uh, geometry, <laughs> you're taking right? it back, man. That's a, yeah, yeah. chills thinking about you, my geometry classes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Nightmare>. <laughs> you get as close to it without touching it. Right. But, um, and that's, that's how I equate it in, in the book. And, it's uh, it's not exactly, but it's it's darn close, and I continue to pursue that future version of me um, with each day that passes. So, so so take us back. So you're you're 16. You you mm-hmm. leave. You you ultimately stay with friends. Your your uncle then takes custody of you. You start in a new school. I mean, tell us what's going through your mind at that point. Like that's an incredible amount of change suddenly. Yeah, it's like what 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 do I do? Um, who am I? What do I do? Um, how do I fit in? I went from a small school to this this kind of gigantic school. It was uh, I think it was thirty two hundred students at the time, with, uh, amongst uh, three grades. So it was pretty pretty big school, um, and uh, you know, and then my uncle, uh, my aunt and uncle were were. Um, still are great people. Uh, but you know, that was different too. It was, it was different for him. It was different for, for his wife. It was, um, you know, for the kids, I have this 16 year old just pop up in your life and now, now he's living with you. So, 
Um, it was it was challenging to to say the least and keep it simple. But um, how do you uh, get good grades? How do you make friends? Um, that's I don't know. It's kind of what it was like. Yeah. So it's a whole new path of life. Now, were you, were you still in touch with your mom or, and your siblings at that point? Or did you just kind of put the blinders on and moved ahead? Yeah, I was. I kept in touch with um, with mom and the kids and I would go back and visit. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe once a month, once every other month or so I would I would drive back down and and visit them. Um, so, yeah, kept in touch. It was kind of strange at first, um, but then it, it became part of life. But then I guess that quickly became, you know, I'm 18 and I'm, I'm working and um, off to college and so forth. And, um, and then, I mean, just everything evolved so quickly for me that, you know, I, so let's see. Um, I don't know how you want to take this, but I was, um, so I finished school. I became a DJ. I was, um, I went to Penn State. Uh, I met my wife. Um, and, you know, during that time, my mom and one of my brothers passed. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know how we want to weave that in, but uh, that all became part of the story as well. Mm. So what, what, uh... They pat they passed at the same time, different different times, different times. Yeah. yeah. So, mom um, at forty nine, I was I believe I was twenty two or twenty three. Uh, sure, I could do the math, but um, mom was forty nine. Uh, basically, overdose, um, septic shock. She she kind of shut down, um, and uh, and that was that was Christmas Day eighteen years ago. Um, and then my brother, um, my brother had contracted uh, hepatitis C from my mom at birth. So all his life, he never really treated it. So at 23, we had to uh, we had to get a new liver for him, a liver transplant, and um, we did. And unfortunately, it did not take. Um, so mom had already passed by then. So I spent uh, probably close to a year in the hospital with him and, and working through that. Um, and, uh, and he eventually passed. So, <laughs> wow, man, I, I can't imagine. I'm sorry about what you've gone through. Did that, what, so what happened at that point with your other siblings? Did that bring you closer to them? Were you in contact with them? Uh, yeah, for a period of time, it, it actually did bring me much, much closer. Always kept in touch with them. Um, it, it, so, yeah, brought me closer for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, today, I don't. We always pick up right where we left off, but um, I think we're kind of doing our own thing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they know that I'm here for them, and that you know I've helped them as much as possible along the way. Um, and um, yeah, but I wouldn't say we're extraordinarily close Mm -hmm. you know where we talk every day or every week so but i'm here i'm here for them so let me ask you this chris so you know a lot of times we can look back and we could say there were certain times where we felt like okay our life is now picking up and and 
things are going to be okay. There's positive momentum. There might be just a certain event that kind of triggers us to feel like we're getting to that next level. Was there, what point in your life did you feel that? What actually happened? Um, I think it was, so there was a pivotal there was a, probably two or three pivotal moments in my life. Um, now that I think about it, there's probably three or four really, really pivotal moments in my life or that helped pick up the momentum uh, down the path that I was pursuing. And I think to answer your question, the one that put me on, on kind of the path I'm on today is um, I started to work on the floor of the stock exchange. And I had been at Penn State studying uh, biology, uh, frankly, and I did this internship on the floor of the stock exchange, which doesn't sound related, and it's it's not. Um, but I, I um, earned the opportunity through actually a, a DJ gig that I did. Um, so took the role. It was kind of a summer internship for for lack of uh, any better explanation. And, um, you know, I probably had three or so semesters left to graduate. And I called my wife at the time. Um, who's my wife today? But I called I called Julie and she um, I said, hey, I'm going to um, change my major. She's like, what do you mean you're going to change your major? You're going to you're going to go off and you're going to go to med school and you want to be a doctor. I said, well, not anymore. I said, I've fallen in love with this this industry. Um, and, uh, so I did, I changed my major to, to business, uh, focusing on finance and, um, and that was it. So I, I ended up, uh, accelerating my, uh, academic career at Penn state and, um, yeah, so I took, I don't know what it was, 20, 22, 24 credits at a time. Plus I had a, a, you know, I was, I was 21 at the time I had a, wife and a, and a baby on the way. And, um, I was DJing and I was working on the floor of the exchange. <laughs> that's um, awesome, man. That's, it was a pretty wild time of a life. So what was it like working on the floor of the stock exchange? That's like one of those dream jobs for somebody in our industry. Um, and not many people get to do it. Oh man, it was so much fun. Um, it, what a, what a great time, a great kind of I'm sure it helped build the foundation that I have today to some degree. Um, looking back, I mean, it was it was purely for it was the options trading floor of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. So, uh, and and if you think about the the um, the time frame it was in, it was uh, I guess it was March or so of two thousand. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I started in January of 2000 and I stayed there through, I think, April or May of, of 2000. So, yeah, wild time, right? I saw I saw kind of boom and bust all, all in a, a quarter. That's <laughs> so. unbelievable. That probably would be the single time you would want. If you were going to take a segment of time to be on the floor of the stock exchange, uh, that's like probably the most exciting action drama film put together. Uh, that must have been amazing. Yeah, I saw some wild stuff I look back on. Um, I mean, gosh, fist fights. Uh, um, wow. Trash. Yeah, it was just 
it was wild. I just, I remember that I was a new advisor. Well, I wasn't, I was five years in cause I'd started at 90, 94, 95. So I came into the business like, you know, five years of, of 20 plus percent growth every single year. And I, I legitimately remember, it's, it's kind of funny cause you're bringing me back to this. I remember thinking, I, I remember dealing with clients that would come in and and they would say to me as a financial advisor, listen, unless you can guarantee that I'm going to earn 30, 40 percent a year, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I, why would I work with you? Because, I mean, people were just they were throwing darts at a dartboard, making all kinds of money. I, I remember people I remember just that period of time. I remember sitting uh, getting ice cream. And uh, there were like two 12-year-old kids talking about stocks. I mean, everybody was talking about it. And and I remember in the late 90s, right before that, I, we even start even in the industry, we started to believe what everybody was believing. Like, okay, well, maybe this is a different stock market. You know, maybe, maybe the market does go up 20% a year. And maybe this is a good time to buy. It was crazy. And then obviously the bottom fell out in, in you know, that time in March. In, in spring of 2000. Um, so, wow, that's just, you're taking me back, man. Crazy times. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, so tell me about how you got in. So, so you, you, uh, after college, tell, tell us a little bit about how you progressed from there and ultimately got into what you're doing. Sure. So I was, um, I was on the floor of the exchange. Uh, I remember, um, wanting to get into an office, into, um, I knew I didn't want to trade options while it was intriguing. And I, I, even today, I still love options. Um, it, it was an opportunity for me, but I, I knew it wasn't what exactly what I wanted to do. Um, frankly, leadership had always intrigued me, uh, even again, as a, as a young kid. Um, but so I, I wanted to pursue a path that wasn't just about, um, really, frankly, just, just making the money. So, um, I, I sent out to this day, I don't know how many, but I sent out probably 40 or 50 or 60, um, resumes at that time. I had really nothing of any good substance to put on my resume, but I created this resume and I sent it out to, um, countless this it had again it had to be 50 or so um brokerage firms firms that today aren't even aren't even in existence um and uh and i sent it out and i would follow up with phone calls just i was offering to work as an intern for free um anywhere i could and um as luck would have it right around the corner from me there was a, a morgan stanley office and the, this uh senior vice president there um, finally took my, uh, took my call after, I don't know how many times I, I tried calling and following up and, uh, he just said, Hey, I'll, I'll take you out to lunch. And he had this, this large practice and this team he had built and, um, took me out to lunch and he just said, look, I'll, I'll hire you. I'll bring you on for <laughs> 10 bucks an hour. Um, and, uh, I was, I was just delighted. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it here. You know, Got your no experience. Was, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was great. I would have done it for free and I had a baby on the way and I, I, 10 bucks an hour was cool. Um, in addition to the, the DJ income, uh, but I was still in school at the time. So anyway, I stayed there a year, um, learned a ton from him. 
and the team and uh, really solidified my, my affinity for the industry. And um, uh, I guess at 22 then, I decided I wanted to become a broker. It was time. Um, and I, so I went and heard that Merrill Lynch had been hiring. And uh, so I did. So I, I, I interviewed, I got the role, took my Series 7 um, and accompanying licenses, um, passed all that, and uh, became a you know, gigantic air quotes broker at 22 um and uh and there it was i was kind of on my way from from that point so i i want to uh i want to uh talk in a few minutes about about how you got into leadership but you made a comment a couple minutes ago you said leadership always intrigued you what always intrigued you about it um it was it was about others and it was being able to influence and have an impact on others. So um, that was it. So uh, affecting or influencing other people. And, and as I, as I look back, as I, as I get older and I continue to reflect in my life, you know, I think it was about um, being the protector, if you will, uh, you know, Simon Sinek says something along the lines of, uh, taking care of those in your care, um, as a leader. And, you know, as I look back, given the situation that I came from, I was the, the kind of leader and protector for my younger siblings in, in the situation we were in. And, um, I think that's probably, uh, at the core of what intrigued me about it the most. Mm. So you, that was really you look back on your your first experience as a leader, really, with your siblings. Sure, yeah, for sure. And I, I don't think I realized that until um, maybe the last couple of years, as you know, my life continues to evolve, and I've had, had a couple of more, a couple more um, interesting events. But uh, but yeah, that that probably was the case. Well, it's interesting because and a lot of people don't understand that about what leadership is. They think about okay, a leader is somebody in a formal role and has a title, but that's not the case. It's really anybody that has influence on someone. So influences your thoughts or your behaviors or anything, and that's that's exactly what you did. Um, now, what what about on the other side? Was there somebody in your life that you think had the biggest influence on you? and was a leader in essence to you and who would that be? Yeah. Um, there were, there were a lot of leaders because there's a lot of different forms of leadership and types of leaders. So there were, um, as with anyone, I had a number of leaders and I'm not sure that all of those leaders were, um, were the leaders that I want wanted to be. So um, you could have, you could be a leader and have a, a negative impact upon people or perhaps those in your care. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were, there were a lot of leaders along the way, none of which I'm, uh, I would say influenced who I want to be. However, they, they certainly influenced who I didn't want to be. Um, 
so you know the the one of the most influential leaders that I've ever um, come in contact with or had the, the the pleasure and the honor of of working alongside was a gentleman by the name of John who um, was uh, one of the C level um, executives at the firm one of the, the firms that I came from so uh, kind of took me under his wing and and uh, taught me a lot of what I know today about good leadership and and who I want to be um, as a leader I still carry with me today a lot of the lessons that that he uh, bestowed upon me and and I <laughs> I'll send him an email or text him or uh, or um, even even put some things in the book about uh, about him, uh, not necessarily by name, but just, Hey, you know, this, this continues to influence me day to day. What's an example of maybe one or two things, lessons that you learn from him or things that you admire most about him as a leader? Well, first it's first and foremost, it's all about, um, people and <clears throat> excuse me. It's, it's about the, um, the people once again, kind of in your care and, they're the people that you have to um, not only take care of, but influence and make a difference with so that they can in turn make a difference with others. So um, that's one. Um, uh, and, and the other probably most important is perspective. So, you know, you, you hear things like, well, there's, there's two sides of the story or three sides to the story. Um, but having full perspective on any given situation is so critically important um, so that you can see it not only from your own viewpoint, but others' viewpoint as well. That's such good advice. I, I think so many leaders miss that, right? And both of those points. I mean, there's there's a lot of leaders, and we've all had interactions with leaders that— and it's very transparent, right? They, they're, they're, they're about them or about the result or they're about something that ties ultimately to them. And then you get people like John or other people that you that might have had great impacts on you where you know it's about the people that they're leading and they're really authentic, right? And And most people don't look at things, most leaders don't look at things, take the effort to look at things from multiple perspectives. And that helps you ultimately make better decisions too. And it also, you know, so the tough thing as a leader, sometimes you've got to make decisions that are not popular. They're the right decision, but they're not popular. And I've found in my own experiences and in talking to great leaders that that looking at things from a different perspective can at least, it may sometimes change the decision, but even if it doesn't, it will help you communicate and sometimes lead those individuals different when you look at it from their perspective, right? You can help them understand a decision that might not have been popular, but ultimately was the right one, right? Yeah, and you know, it's important not only what they see and what they want, but also where, they, where they're, they're coming from or where they came from. Knowing, knowing those, uh, that piece of it is so important too because you, you know why they might be responding to something the way that they, they are um, versus saying, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Why would you have that thought? Or why would you ever do that in that situation? Well, you know, it's like, it's like knowing my story, right? So those who know my story know 
why I um, <laughs> kind of do the things I do or am the way I am. I'm, I'm extraordinarily uh, relentless and, and tenacious um, and, and all for, for good, but not, not all, <laughs> it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think knowing, knowing that, uh, where they came from is really, really important because then, you know, kind of how to, how to handle them. Well, my, my guess is also, you know, one of the things that you learned really early was the benefits of stepping outside your comfort zone, which, you know, most, most people, not just leaders, but most people don't do. You did it in an early age and wow, stepped outside a huge comfort zone, um, and you saw the benefits of that. So that probably, my guess is that that kind of wired you to realize the importance of doing that because you got rewarded by doing that. How, how and, and I, I love your comments on that. And then also, you know, how does, how important is that in leadership as a leader stepping outside your comfort zone and also leading others to do that? Um, yeah, so I always say and i'm sure it's i i i know i didn't make it up but um the only the only magic that exists happens outside of your comfort zone so there's actually a little diagram that that goes with that but um in order to to better yourself and push yourself and be um be the person you want to be you just you have to live outside your comfort zone and that's that is so much easier said than done um, in, in 10 minutes, I'll probably go back to just inherently naturally go back to <laughs> my comfort zone, um, whether I'm, I'm, um, sharing my story on your show or I go and, and interact with, with others. It's just where, where we all kind of fall back to, but encouraging others to, um, to get outside of that zone is, and, and and live outside that zone and stay outside that zone is where um, great things, great um, magic occurs. So by doing it yourself first, um, you know what it takes, you know what it feels like, and you know what it can produce. So only then can can you influence others to do the same. So, um, my, my advice to, well, myself and and others is, um, figure it out yourself first. And then once you do get others to do the same so that they can in turn better themselves and influence others to do it. Yeah. My guess is, and you get used to the self-talk, you get used to what goes on in your head when you step outside your comfort zone, which helps you manage that a little bit better, you know, okay, hey, here's how I'm going to feel. Here's what I'm going to end up saying to myself. And here's how I got to combat that to keep myself on the right path. You know, yeah, no one talks to you more than you. Right. <laughs> uh, I love that too. Magic happens outside your comfort zone. I love that. That's uh, that's great, man. Uh, so tell us about what was the first formal leadership position you started as a broker. When did you get into any kind of formal leader position? Um, I guess, uh, the first was when I went to the next company and I, I became an independent advisor and, um, and I brought on someone to really, um, an assistant, uh, uh, to work alongside me. And, um, I would say that that was my first real experience with leadership. 
Mm-hmm. And, what, and was, uh, what was that like? Um, it, well, it depends who you ask, uh, <laughs> me or her. Um, but, uh, you know, she'll tell you today. And we're, we're very close. She's really one of, one of my most dear friends today. Uh, we'll very likely work together um, again at some point in the not too distant future. Um, so our relationship today is really, really strong. She's, she's like a sister to me. Um, but she'll, she'd be the first to tell you that, um, she was looking for a job to, to leave me (laughs) because, because of how, I guess, intense or tenacious I was. Um, and, uh, and it was, yeah, um, I, I had no idea what I was doing, but my, my goals and, uh, were, were so strong that I almost probably didn't even care about what, what it was that she wanted or who she was. So, um, it by no means that I understand leadership then the way that I do today. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we had some heart to hearts over the years and we got to understand each other and I got to be <laughs> respectful, um, of, uh, myself and, and her and others. And, um, yeah, it turned into a wonderful relationship, work, wonderful working relationship. Uh, I could have never built the practice that I did without her. And uh, we were just talking last night. And, um, and you know, she'll, like I said, very likely come work with me again in, in the not too distant future. That's great. So what did that teach you? It sounds like you almost lost her at one point. What, what did you learn about leadership with her? Yeah, that it's that other people matter. Uh, and I know that sounds perhaps redundant or, uh, overly simple, but it's, it's about other people. It's, it's not about what you want and you have to get in order to get where you want to be. You've got, it, it's almost like reverse psychology. You have to take care of others, not yourself. Um, it's almost like the, you know, the, the path to prosperity is not in, um, saving or keeping or, uh, having a scarcity mindset, it's about giving and doing for others. So, um, that's, that's really what it taught me. And, uh, I'm sorry she had to, um, take the, the brunt of my learning, but, uh, um, that's what it taught me. So let me ask you this, Chris, a lot of people that are listening are, are, are wanting to, to become better leaders. And I've, I've been a big believer that you can do things that will exponentially increase your speed of development. Um, and some people take steps to do that. Some people don't. What, what are some ways that somebody can learn leadership? Two ways. One, read. Uh, two, do it. So, by reading, I absolutely love not necessarily books on leadership, but books about people in leadership or who have had and held leadership roles, be they uh, formal or informal. So I love biographies. I love um, uh, watching and listening, reading about how others have done it, the mistakes that they have made. Um, and, and the successes that they've had. So I read, uh, relentlessly so as to continually learn. 
Um, and then the other is in doing. So um, by doing, you you put it all into practice and um, and you make mistakes. So there's no better teacher than mistakes. And um, I think it's just about getting outside your comfort zone, doing it, trying different things, um, and and then um, you know learning it that way. Any any specific books that you'd recommend or authors? Um, I just read. Uh, I just finished reading uh, Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. Uh, wonderful book. Um, geez, I, I could name you tons of titles. Bob Iger's book, uh, his his newest book, uh, The Ride of a Lifetime. Wonderful, wonderful book. One of the best books I've ever read. Um, I love uh, Roosevelt. Um, uh, General Patton, um, probably, probably, uh, the, the best ones I've read there. John Adams was a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, is there a, uh, any, any, uh, current or past leader that's uh, high profile that you want to emulate anybody that you look at as, uh, as a great example? Um, you know, Richard Branson comes to mind as as you ask the question. I right? love him. He is awesome. Yeah, he's just awesome, right? I mean, someone who's not only been successful in business, but has has is continually successful with people. And you look at his his spirit and the way that uh, he interacts with others, and he thinks about life and legacy and and um, and again people. Uh, is is just I don't I don't I don't know of too many better leaders or or let's call it people that I want to emulate in leadership than Richard Branson. Well, it's interesting. My favorite things about Richard Branson and stories. He, he you know he and you you may know this or probably do that he has uh, dyslexia and you know growing up his teachers thought he was either dumb or lazy or both and. Um, you know, he suffered his whole life with it. And he now, and it actually almost killed him. He, he tells a story about how he was skydiving and, you know, pulled the wrong cord. I guess there's a cord, which doesn't really make sense, but there's a cord to, you know, there's a, there's a rip cord and then there's a cord to release the backpack. And he actually pulled the one to release the backpack while he's up. Oh my goodness. Feet. I did not know that but, story. <laughs> um, yeah. He actually credits that. He said, uh, credits dyslexia. He says, you know what that helped me do I didn't. I wasn't able to really get in the weeds, so to speak, in the details. He said I, I just couldn't, so it helped me. I just surrounded myself with people that could do it, and it helped me focus on the bigger picture stuff. Which I'm like, wow, what a cool example of just how you take what might be perceived as a weakness and turn that into what he credits to be a strength. I mean, that's like just a fascinating perspective. Uh, but great, great leader. Yeah. Yes. For sure. And, and that, that kind of ties in with the idea that, you know, you can't have success without failure and you can't have um, triumphs without obstacles. So, um, you know, I, I talked to my kids today I and mean, they've got a they've got a pretty good and uh, relatively easy life, um, especially compared to, to how I grew up. And um you know, I try to tell them those stories. So it's it's a it's a strange balance because 
you don't want to give them everything, but you don't want to take everything away from them. And you want to make them stronger, but you don't want to. Um, so it's it's just this this struggle, this continual struggle that I have. So I haven't figured that one out. <laughs> I, I really uh, don't want to use any of this time to give any parenting advice because it would be wrong. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to continually balance that every day to to mm-hmm. give them a little bit of hardship, but give them the good things that I've worked for. So let me ask you this, and this is <clears throat> this is uh, based on our current environment. And somebody might listen to this podcast, you know, years from now. So just to date date stamp it, we're right now in the midst of uh, Corona virus uh, uh, pandemic, and uh, and and all kinds of things are happening. We've got market and economic uncertainty. The market's moving a thousand points a day and has dropped uh, from almost thirty thousand down to twenty thousand, and in a rapid time, you've got all kinds of uncertainty with what the future holds, right? We've got restaurants closing down and gyms closing down and everybody, you know, uh, you know, staying put in their houses. So let's talk about leadership as it relates to that. How does a leader, when you're in a situation where the, even the leader does not, you know, a, a job of a leader oftentimes is to see around the corner. Um, and help people uh, and guide them. But when the leader doesn't necessarily know, how do you operate in a situation like that when you're in times of really significant and severe uncertainty? What's the leader's role and how do they, how do they deal with that? So, um, you know, I've actually been thinking through this a lot and I've been talking through it a lot over the last couple of weeks given, given the environment and the situation. Um, and I think the first thing to, to know as the leader is that it's okay not to have all the right answers. It's okay to, to frankly say, I don't know. Um, I just don't know. So I think there's, there's strength and there's confidence in saying, I don't know. Um, or, and telling others that it's okay to say that. So I think that's really the most important thing because I don't know. I don't have answers as to whether or not, um, you know, the market is going to rebound or uh, in in a very short period of time. Do I do I fully believe long term? Of course, it's it's going to recover. Yes. Um, Otherwise, it's the end of the world, in which case none of this matters anyway. Um, But um, but I think acknowledging that you don't know, um, but believing um, in something, believing in the future, believing in yourselves, believing in uh, America or people or uh, unification, whatever it is, um, is something of strength. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think you know you can you can try to anticipate uh, what lies ahead, help others navigate through it. Uh, communication is so so very important. Um, it's, it's, you can't over communicate in this environment with your clients, with your, your people, um, with your peers, with perhaps those above you, uh, you just, you can't communicate too much, um, you know, and, and listening. So one thing I've done, uh, recently is, so we, we have everyone working from home. And what I asked uh, a couple of folks to do is uh, to stay connected with each other. So do kind of a daily huddle call 
It's a, you know, it's a three to five minute call probably about um, just what's on your minds and hearts. It may not be about work. It can be about work. It doesn't have to be about work. It probably shouldn't be about work, but it's, Hey, what's going on in your, your community, especially if you have kind of a distributed model, uh, what's going on in your neighborhood or your community. Um, and, and what's on your mind and heart, what are your fears right now? So it's just a way to stay connected since you're not in the office. So a little bit of rambling there, but that's how I would, that's how I'm handling and encouraging others to handle, uh, this environment. Well, I, I, I absolutely, I think you're spot on with that. I think a lot of leaders, you know, when they are in times like this, first of all, it is so critical, the communication and visibility of a leader in times of uncertainty. And a lot of leaders feel, you know, they, they, and this goes into the bucket of stepping outside your comfort zone, right? There's a lot of leaders that just feel like, Hey, listen, if I don't have the answers, I don't know what to say. And then they opt to not say anything. Well, your point is so good. It's, it's, listen, your job is not to know the answer. You don't have them. But the communication piece is so critical. People look at leaders for that feeling of security. And uh, even when the road is cloudy ahead and foggy and, and they don't know what's ahead, just that person that's there giving some sort of comfort or reassuring message uh, and just allowing people to talk and speak and communicate, that's just so critical. So I, I, you're spot on with that. I'm glad you said that. So let me ask you this, Chris. So what, what's, I know you've done a lot. Um, you've accomplished a lot. Uh, and I know you're working on some things right now. So tell, tell me a little bit about what's going on now and what's your priority, some of the things you're working on. Sure. So uh, I would say there's kind of two main professional buckets in my life right now. One is I'm president of an investment firm. So we're, we're a firm that uh, brings advisors from uh, other other channels and gives them the opportunity to be if they're not already an independent advisor. So um, advisors might leave the bank or brokerage uh, channels for a variety of reasons, um, be it um, freedom or independence, autonomy, um, product selection. Um, Frankly, some some leave because they want a higher payout. Um, uh, so so maybe it's a you know economic or financial reasons, um, and and that's what we do. So we help get them set up. We help uh, bring them into business um, for themselves, not by themselves, and that's what we're focused on. And then we help them build out their practices organically once they're here. That's great. So, it's, a lot, it's a tough business, and a lot of a lot of advisors may be great potential advisors, but end up spending their time on the wrong things, or they just don't know how to do some of the things that uh, really are behind the scenes sometimes, and the the other stuff that goes into running a business. So it sounds like you provide a really good support system to help them focus on the things that are most important, and not the stuff that they don't need to deal with. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. So that's, that's bucket one. Um, the other is, uh, I, I wrote a book with the, um, my underlying, uh, philosophy for being an advisor. And from that, I am creating a, um, what I like to think of as a consulting firm for advisors. That's not really a traditional consulting firm. It's actually more of a community, 
so it, it's a community for um, enhancement of advisors. And uh, I'm, I'm in the process of building that out through a series of experiences, uh, conferences, masterminds, workshops, uh, both online and in person, uh, so that advisors, like-minded advisors, can uh, belong to a community and um, better themselves and uh, and the uh, the client experience and the legacy that they want to leave. So is the is the value for them as the advisor? They're learning from their peers and 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 from that community. Is that what the purpose of it is? Yeah. So I'd say they, they they're going to learn in three different uh, main ways. One is their peers. Uh, two would be their um, uh, industry experts. So we'll have we'll have just countless industry experts um, that are subject matter experts and um, and and teach or educate. Um, and then myself and my partner will also share our uh, our knowledge and our experiences with the community. Awesome. That's great. So if somebody wants to, uh, well, first of all, if somebody wants to pick up your book, Servant Advisorship, what, wh- how do they get a hold of it? Yeah. Uh, Amazon would be probably the, uh, the best way you can get it on Kindle or paperback. Um, uh, yeah. Terrific. And, and how about information on the, uh, the network that you have? Um, so we're we're in the process of building out the uh, the website and the brand and, and so forth. Uh, for now, they can go to theserventadvisor.com. and that's a website that's dedicated to the book and the philosophy um, and will, what will eventually become the community. Awesome, awesome, man. Well, I could talk to you for. Uh... Another hour easily because uh, there's so much that I'd still like to ask you, but we're running against the clock here. So uh, let me just turn it back to you. Is there anything you want to make sure that you leave the audience with? Any messages? Any things based uh, maybe that we didn't even hit on? Um, you know, the only thing I'd go back to that that um, crosses my mind is you know, kind of what is leadership. Um, and, and uh, how can you be a better leader, especially as I think about this environment, as I look out the window and look at uh, the computer and my phone and what's going on in, in the markets and so forth. But um, leadership is, in my opinion, the light. So be the light, be the change, be the, the leader that you, uh, that you want and need or wanted and needed um, so that folks that are in your care can um, get to where they want to be. Awesome. I love that. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Chris Bonacore, thank you, my friend. This has been a very enlightening, enjoyable, um, entertaining hour, man. I could, uh, like I said, I could talk to you for another hour easily. And uh, I hope that uh, at some point you come back on and uh, at least one more episode, if not two or three. So that that good? <laughs> Good game. That sounds wonderful, John. Thank you very kindly for your time and uh, your interest here. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader. Again, our goal is to bring to light some of the best learnings and have some of the best guests. You certainly got a ton of takeaways from Chris Bonacore today. 
Make sure you subscribe. Hit that subscribe button so you get plugged in on all our future episodes. And be sure to like and comment. And be sure to share. Share with your friends, other people that are interested in learning about leadership. Thanks for joining, everybody. Have a great day.